Well, in our series of sermons, uh, we are looking at the functions of the early church as uh, given for us in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost has come, which was the birth of the church. Uh, we read that over 3,000 people, about 3,000 plus the original 120 uh, became part of that first church. Chartered members. And then uh, reading at uh, chapter 2, beginning of verse 42, we see what uh, the kind of activities and functions that uh, were going on in the early church. And some of those have become like basics, uh, essentials, what you would expect in every church, really. You know, as Baptists, we have certain Baptist uh, tenets. These are things that you expect in a, in a Baptist church. Uh, but these are tenets that you would expect in every Christian church. And uh, Baptists included, of course. And so the first one we uh, talked about was a couple of weeks ago, or perhaps uh, Thanksgiving was in between there, so it's more than two weeks ago. But we began with the one on, uh, they devoted themselves, it says, to the apostles' teaching. Their authority was the teaching of the Word. Uh, and specifically as explained to them by the apostles who had been with Jesus and they were passing on what he had taught them. But there's no more important commitment to Scripture than simply it is our authority for faith and practice. They devoted themselves to that. And then uh, last Sunday they devoted themselves to fellowship. Fellowship, so important. And uh, I mentioned uh, last time that um, fellowship was almost like the big tent, you know, in which everything else took place. It, everything took place in the context of fellowship. They were worshiping, but together. They were learning the word, but together. Uh, worshiping, praying, but together. And so it is with uh, the one we're looking at this morning, the breaking of bread. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And that's the third one, the breaking of bread. Are they referring to communion here? I think you can, I think you can debate that. Uh, I think they were because it's in the context sandwiched between other things, you know, teaching of the word, prayer, fellowship, and uh, goes on and talks about it uh, further on, uh, verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and then says they broke bread in their homes and ate together. I think that the breaking of bread is almost like a, an expression that refers to communion, but even if it, even if it doesn't, um, we know that the early church practiced it because uh, the one we were looking at earlier, and I'll be going back to it, 1 Corinthians 11 shows how that, th that was a major ongoing event in the local church. Also keep in mind uh, that uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which took place in the last hours of Jesus' life, would be fresh in the minds of the apostles. We're talking weeks later, not years, 
but just weeks later. And so I think most, most uh, leaders and scholars uh, believe that, uh, you know, the breaking of bread included, it was, it was eating together, but at the same time breaking bread in the terms of communion. Well, we uh, need to uh, look at uh, where it all started. Uh, it's in Luke uh, chapter 22, in the upper room, when Jesus was eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover meal was one of the religious feasts that was practiced by the Jews with his disciples. And the significance of the Passover, it was a way of remembering their liberation from Egypt. Because the Passover occurred in that context as they were to, to leave Egypt. And uh, it was important that the future generations remembered that. And so this became an annual event, a festival, Passover. And here Jesus introduces the Lord's Supper in the Passover. Um, observing of the Passover. In, in that context, in that experience, is when he introduces his Supper. It's a... It's a new exodus. And as the Passover remembered and celebrated their departure out of Egypt, their deliverance from slavery. So now this is the new exodus which celebrates the deliverance from sin and the slavery of sin. sin. Uh, a new reign, Jesus' reign over us. All of that packed in as like the new exodus. And so we see that in Luke 22, 19 and 20. And during the course of that meal, he takes bread and he says, this is my body, and then he, uh, which is uh, given for you. And then he takes the cup saying, this is the new covenant in my blood that's poured out. And it calls on them then to do, keep doing this. Do it in remembrance of me. Well, the early church practiced it, and we see that in 1 Corinthians. Um, but what does it all mean? What can we add to it? And we're so familiar with the basics, as I you know, cover every uh, communion Sunday. We're familiar with that, and we've read that, that portion from 1 Corinthians 11. And we know that it has to do with his death on our behalf, and that we are to keep on doing it until he comes again. But I thought this morning that by uh, speaking on it, uh, we can maybe go a little deeper. We can maybe be reminded of things that we didn't know before, maybe some extra understanding of it, significance. And, uh, and I really you know, wondered, should we change our order of communion so that uh, this sermon can lead into communion, but then the ones that go off for Sunday school would be missing out on it. But I was also thinking that by having, having had communion already this morning, we can be a little more leisurely as we think about this, because it isn't, it isn't under the, shall we say, the anxiety of making sure we're prepared for communion. Uh, this is to help you prepare for next month's communion. How's that? And so we can land on each point a little more uh, in a more relaxed way where we really ponder it. Uh, well, we're used to the words that uh, we read earlier, but now I want us to look at uh, the words that preceded that. And that is 1 Corinthians 11, 
But starting in verse 17, Paul says in the following directives, I have no praise for you, (laughs) for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And I take that as sarcasm. So then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Or when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Wow. (laughs) What? What a rebuke to the church related to the Lord's Supper. See, by way of background, in the early church, the Lord's Supper was observed in conjunction with a larger fellowship meal that the congregation was eating together. And it seems that each one brought their own food to that. And so Paul here is addressing a problem that has to do with divisions among them, something that comes up early in the epistle as well. You probably recall that in the first couple chapters. He uh, talks about them, that they are comparing uh, different leaders, okay? And that becomes a course of division among them, uh, of clickishness, you know? Uh, comparing one leader over another and polarizing. Some were saying that I'm a Peter. Others are saying I'm following Paul. Still others, Apollos. Factions and divisions in the church already. And so here in chapters 10 and 11, he rebukes them for the divisive way they are conducting themselves in the very experience of the Lord's table. And so he says to them, that I have no praise for you. I can't praise you in this. And uh, he talks about how there's such a difference among them, and he maybe he's using hyperbole. Some of them are drunk, and some of them don't have anything. And, uh, but, but his concern here isn't about their overindulgence. Uh, that would be a different concern, but his, div- his concern here is that they're not together. Divisiveness. And he says in verse 22, Do you despise the church? What does that mean? And I mentioned before that to despise is not the same as to hate, but to despise is to take something and minimize it, trivializing it. Are you, are you trivializing the church? Having so little regard for what is the church after all? It's community, right? The church is the body of Christ. It's our togetherness, a fellowship. And he says, are you, are you trivializing that? Because they're segregated, they're divided into factions. And that is so contrary to the real meaning of the body of Christ. The church is supposed to be about people who for all their differences are nonetheless one in Christ. But in their case, they're segregated. Some are bringing meals, you know, what we used to say, I don't know if we still say that, uh, use that expression, but fit for a king. And then others 
don't have anything. But not only that, those who have abundance of food when they come to this fellowship experience, they just go ahead and eat and they, in fact, in effect, they are humiliating those that don't have anything. The way you're caring, verse 20 says, it's not the Lord's Supper you're doing. What does he mean by that? I take it to mean that you've, you can't call it that. You may think it's the Lord's Supper, but you disqualify yourself from it being the Lord's Supper in the way you're doing it. Because the Lord's table is about fellowship. Fellowship with the Lord. He's here and fellowship with one another. And it's interesting back in uh, 1016 where that word that is uh, translated as participation in verse 16 uh, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. Is it not participation? That's the word koinonia that we use for fellowship, uh, which is to share with someone in something. And so here he's warning against them in that context about not having anything to do with pag pagan uh, idolat idolatrous sacrifices because when you partake of those sacrifices in that context, you are having fellowship with idols. And so that's the idea here, is that when you partake of the Lord's table, it means fellowship, fellowship with the Lord and sharing in the significance of his shed blood. Uh, but the way they're carrying on, it contradicts the very meaning the Lord's Supper is intended to be a meal, and here's where we have another verse, and that is 1017, uh, where we have a meal out of one loaf in our eating together. By doing that, we're proclaiming that through Christ's death, we are one body. He says there's one loaf, many of us, but it represents the one body. And so they... Their divisiveness, as I said, contradicts the very meaning of the supper. And so let's look at this uh, verse that uh, we have probably pondered. What in the world does that mean? Unworthy. Uh, verse uh, chapter 11 again. 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Unworthy manner. I'm sure we've all wondered about that. What is that about? Does that mean that if you're not perfectly cleansed, you better not do it? Is it about examining yourself to see uh, what are the mistakes and the sins you've committed in the last week or even last night? Is that what it's about? don't think that's what it's about here. I think he's talking about the very thing we've been talking about. See, these people are carrying on the way they're carrying on. And they're observing the Lord's table in an unworthy way. Now, please, that's not to say that you shouldn't examine yourself. It says so. Examine yourself, okay? But it's especially about disowning the togetherness, the divisiveness that they were carrying on. They were not demonstrating fellowship and unity. The Lord's Supper is being eaten in a manner which highlights the different 
socioeconomic status of the people. They fail so blatantly in the horizontal, and when you fail in the horizontal in that context, you're also failing in the vertical. And so they're guilty, it says there in that same verse, of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord through their divisive way of doing it. And uh, verse 29 highlights it, you know. He says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. Discerning, the, recognizing the significance of his body. That is the body, we are his body. And not having a proper appreciation for the significance of the body of Christ. That tells me that we are to realize that it is an amazing thing that God has brought people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of differences and he's made them into his body. That's not something to trivialize. Are you, uh, you know, you're not discerning, you're not recognizing the body of Christ. And then remember what he said in, in verse 22, are you despising the church of God? Yeah, <laughs> that's what they're doing, despising the church of God trivializing. And this is so major that Paul attributes some of their illnesses and even deaths as God's judgment for the same. That's what he says. That is why many of among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Paul believed in judgment and he believed that this was so major that it could very well be the reason why some of them have died prematurely. It's consistent with what he said earlier in, in, uh, in, in this letter. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy, for God's temple is sacred. What does he mean by temple? Well, he goes right on to say, And you, you, you plural, you are that temple. Sem separates, but Jesus died to break down walls, to bring about reconciliation, but they were doing communion, the very experience that is supposed to be about fellowship. They were doing it in a way that rebuilds the very walls that Jesus died to break down. He died to remove the boundaries, uh, rend the veil, so that Jews and Gentiles could be together. He died to remove the walls and the way they're carrying on, it's like they're rebuilding them again. And so there's the warning to self-examination. And so Jesus died to reconcile people, to create a people, a faith community of all kinds of people, one in Christ. Those who eat wieners and those who eat, eat steaks. One in Christ. Those in mansions and those in dingy, crowded apartments. One in Christ. Jews, Gentiles, African, Asian, Native, Filipinos, Norwegians, Ukrainians. One in Christ. Uh, male, female, married, single, divorced, widowed, healthy, ailing, Older, younger, educated, uneducated, 
one in Christ. And how we need each other, really. It's not as if we want everybody to, you know, to be what we think might be at the top. <laughs> my, my goodness, you know, do we tend to think that being a... I, I hesitate to say it, but, I, but please hear me so you know my intent. Do we perhaps think that being a garbage collector is sort of at the bottom? Well, just smell unpicked up garbage and then think again. How much we need people who may not be up where we think we'd want to be. All these people, one in Christ. Jesus died for this, to bring us into fellowship with himself and one with one another. Well, I want to summarize three things that I think we can especially take home as to the significance of communion. And I give uh, credit to Dr. Stanley Grentz for, for some of this breakdown in the wording. Uh, he's, he was a contemporary theologian. Unfortunately, uh, God took him home at, uh, without much warning as far as I know. I knew him. Well, I didn't know him, but I met him. Um, age 55. But uh, anyway, Dr. Stanley Grantz, uh, he, uh, he has this breakdown. And, uh, the you know, summarizing the meaning of communion, one, it directs our attention to the crucifixion and the future fulfillment. Think of that. Think of the bookends there. We are remembering that he died for us, but we are also remembering that he is coming again. My body, new covenant, in my blood, do this remembering looking back, remembering his sacrifice, and then realize again the benefit of that sacrifice for us, remembering the crucifixion. And yet, as I said before, though we are thinking about his crucifixion, we are aware that he is here with us. We're remembering his resurrection as well. Remembering his life, how he taught the disciples in the upper room, how he ate with outcasts, which was a sign of the new kingdom. Remembering remembering how he suffered. His death was cruel and shameful, executed like a criminal. Uh, remembering the significance of his death, that his dying was on the cross and it was for us. He took our guilt. He took our punishment. Uh, dying for us and dying in our place. And by shedding his blood, he sealed a new covenant between God and his people, the basis of our forgiveness. But then at the same time, remembering, as I said, do this until I come again. Uh, secondly, it directs our attention to the, or it expresses the unity of the body. And we've talked about that fellowship, but so important, one loaf. We who are many are one, for we share in that one same loaf. And when we partake of communion, it is a good thing to be pondering and reflecting that there are millions of Christians around the world that are doing the same thing. Hmm. And throughout church history, millions of people have been a part of this. Uh, our daughter, who uh, ended up going to a liturgical uh, 
church, and that's where they are now in a more liturgical church. But I asked about that. What is it that's attractive? One thing she mentioned, among other things, was it was really something to be thinking that these same words that we are expressing are being expressed by so many people around the world. And we can think about that as we partake of communion. Millions of others are part of this. The universal church does church with many different styles and expressions, and it's not that we need to be comfortable with every one of them. I don't mean that. Uh, we've chosen that this is who we are, and that's fine. But it's appropriate to remember that the body is so much wider than ourselves and to be aware of that. Hey, I'm part of something so major. But more, more practical, of greater practical importance is the unity at home base. Unity. How are we together? Are we in fellowship with one another? Even as emphasized last week when I spoke at, on the fellowship, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. In love, encouraging one another, supporting one another. That's right here at home. And how about the diversity part, which relates very directly to Paul's concern at Corinth? Concerned that those well-off are not doing fellowship with the poorer members. We're used to the expression, unity in diversity. It's a good expression. Let me give you another one that goes along with it. How about this? Not just unity in diversity, but fellowship in diversity. See, unity might indicate, well, we tolerate. We're okay with that. We're not fighting them. Unity, okay? I know unity is more than that, but it's not very personal necessarily. But fellowship and diversity, I think that's a little stronger and a little more personal. I, th I think, and here I'd, I'd, I'd like to uh, give you a little bit of a brainstorm here or a radical idea maybe, but I think it would be appropriate to the meaning of communion to occasionally have that fellowship meal first, and then make communion a part of it. I mean, just think. We've got these round tables, and they're just the right size. I don't know how many can gather around each round table, maybe 10 people. And what if we were to say, when it comes to the communion part, we eat together, enjoy each other's company? And then not only that, but I would encourage them now, now why don't you sit with people you don't normally sit with, okay? And, of course, even in a group this size, there are some that you're already cozy with, others you haven't got so much to do with. So you intentionally sit with people that you don't usually sit with. And then what if we were to have one loaf for each table so that we would be practicing uh, chapter 10, verse 17, one loaf, but, you know, many people take partaking of that one loaf because we are our one. Anyway, the important thing here speaks of unity, speaks of the togetherness of the body of Christ. <clears throat> I like this account about the Duke of Wellington. Uh, after his defeat of Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, the British general attended a small church where he went forward and knelt down to receive communion. An old man in tattered clothes knelt beside him. 
A deacon approached the old man, placed his hand on the man's shoulder, and whispered for him to keep his distance, you know, from the, from the duke. Overhearing this, the duke immediately glasped, glasped the old man's hand and told him, don't move. We are all equal here. Not good. That's exactly right. We are all equal here. Togetherness, unity. And I would say it's highlined even more in the context of diversity. Isn't it wonderful that in spite of the differences in society and God's economy, we're all the same. You can be a CEO, you can be a laborer, you can be a single parent dependent on welfare. You can be a brilliant academic or someone not able to finish high school. You can be older or you can be younger. You can be in your prime uh, where you can do so much. And we appreciate those of you in prime that do so much in this church. Or you might be mature, not able to do so much anymore. You might be one of those who's struggling and it seems that, you know, it seems that for every uh, step forward, there's two steps backward. Or you might be somebody who is mature and stable in your faith. But in, at the cross, we are together. The ground is level. And so, in summary, the significance of communion, A, it directs our attention to the cross and to that he's coming again. B, it expresses our unity with one another as well as with others who are Christians. And then thirdly, it is a way of identifying with Christ. Communion reflects our personal identity in Christ. As I take of the elements each time I'm saying I'm part of this. Yeah, that's so great. I'm part of this. It's a confession. Jesus is my personal Lord. And in this confession, there's also the confession of dependence. I, I need the Lord. I need his forgiveness. I need his grace. Confession, identifying. And by ingesting food and drink, which represents his body and blood, we are symbolizing again. We are demonstrating that it's through, you know, what you ingest becomes part of you. And we, Jesus Christ is part of us. Our salvation is based not on simply what he did out there, but in being connected to him, being in union with him. And so I say, what a reason to celebrate. Christ died for me to reconcile me to God and to a life of fellowship, of support, of teamwork. I love that part, working together. And so when we come to the table, we come with any, without any claim of our own, but only that he has made provision and he invites us to come. Let's pray. Lord, we, we ask that your Spirit might make it increasingly real to us. But Lord, it's also called a feast of thanksgiving. It's also called a, a time of thanksgiving. And we give you thanks for what you have provided and for working in us that we have accepted your offer. We pray that as we go from here, we might go once again aware of our need for grace, our dependence on you, but at the same time rejoicing in your call upon our life 
and in our oneness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.